my mom used to talk about Rinty and religion and how he would teach from the Bible. They would go to the religious services that were held by the slaveholders, but then they would sneak away and sometimes hide their heads and hide and worship and sing as they pleased. Rinty was a proud person. Rinty would do things other people wouldn't do, like a risk taker, maybe. And people respected him for that. They're working in the fields at night. He would sit down and study that book until he mastered that book. And so just persistent, persevering, stubborn, but a community person, uh, you know, a person that cared about other people. And other people respected him for that. From the Harvard Crimson, this is A Legacy Revealed. In the last episode, we talked about the Zeely daguerreotypes, the photographs of seven black people taken at the behest of Louis Agassiz without their consent. Among the people in the daguerreotypes were Renty and Delia. Today, their photographs are the subject of the high-profile lawsuit against the Peabody Museum, Lanier v. Harvard. Tamara Lanier from Connecticut says she is a direct descendant of Renty and that Harvard has wrongfully kept and profited from the daguerreotype of Renty. The case was dismissed by a Middlesex County Superior Judge, who said the statute of limitations on the case had passed and that Tamara Lanier did not own the property rights to the daguerreotypes. Today we're joined by Tamara. Hi Tamara, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Tamara Lanier and I am the plaintiff in the Lanier v. Harvard lawsuit. Tamara, what is your familial connection to Renty and Delia? I have a death record that shows Renty's, this man's grandson. It is often difficult for the descendants of enslaved people to trace their lineage. The federal census did not document African descendants until 1870, 250 years after their arrival to the U.S. Before then, enslaved Africans were likely only mentioned as property in their enslavers' documents, such as tax records or estate records. Was Rinty Taylor? Rinty Taylor's son was Rinty Taylor, then turned Thompson. That's my mom's grandfather. And these are his. Tamara pulls out her iPad, where she keeps thousands of pictures carefully cataloged into different albums. She documents everything meticulously partially attributing this to years of working in the court system. In one of her albums, she has a family tree with Renty and Delia's name. She also has a deed that places a man named Renty in Benjamin Franklin Taylor's plantation. For Tamara, this is proof and confirmation that the man in the daguerreotypes is her papa Renty. But my mom grew up in a household with Fred and his father. Rinty Thompson, Rinty III, was born a slave. How did you initially find out about Rinty and Delia and the daguerreotypes? My original learning of the daguerreotypes was, again, another amazing story. And, you know, I always start with my mom throughout my life, throughout my children's life, always talked about Papa Rinty, always talked about her heritage, her genealogy. 
And whenever she would sit down with that story, she would start with the Black African. My mom was diagnosed with diabetes and she actually died for a while. She was dead for like 14 minutes in one occasion. But at any rate, when my mom was in the hospital, we would sit with her. We took shifts, making sure that someone was always there with her. She would say, I want you to write down this story about Paparinti. I want you to document this. You know, she had a book that her cousin had written tracing her maternal side. My mom wanted to do the same on a paternal side, starting with Paparinti to her. And so she never got around to doing it. But when she knew she was dying, it was pressing for her. She continued to say, I need you to write this down. She was naming children, naming um, Rinty's children. I start, we, we talked about these things because it made her feel good. It distracted her from her failing health. And, uh, you know, it was comforting to her to talk about these stories. So we encouraged her to talk about them and she pressed us to write it down. And occasionally I would tape her talking about it. After she passed, you know, there was so much going on and there was a lot of grief and remorse because I said, I promised her I would do this. I don't know where to begin. And I'm out walking for lunch one day and I stopped back by an ice cream shop that had great salads for lunch. And, and I would all often stop in and make small talk with the owner. And I shared with them that my mom had passed and that I was struggling because I had promised her I would write this book, put this book together and I didn't know how to do it. And so Rich was like in his 80s. And I remember him saying, oh, write down what you know, and I'll do the research. I love doing this. And I'm looking at him like people in their 70s didn't even go near the computers, let alone surf on the internet and know how to do the research. So I'm like, okay, yeah, right. He's going to be real helpful. But I, I wrote down about Rinty, um, that he was African born and his children's names and some of the wives and different things. And I leave, I come back like weeks later. And when I walk in, he's like, where have you been? I found your Papa Rinty on the internet. And I'm like, yeah, right. What is my Papa Rinty doing on the internet? So I just thought he had put together some bizarre stuff and I didn't really pay it any attention. And I go back to work and I don't look at the information until that evening. And the first thing I opened was about Louis Agassiz and the race science and this whole dark study and about, you know, the scientific racism, I'm like, oh my goodness. And so then I, I open up another attachment and there's the picture of renting. I'm like, oh my God. And immediately I knew that this was the man that I had heard so much about. I'm like, oh my God. And then, you know, I thought about the pictures that I had created in my mind, but when I looked in his eyes, it was as if we were connecting and like, I could see family in his eyes. And I remember in that moment thinking about my mom because she never saw him either. She only heard about him from her grandfather and her father, who was Rinchi's grandson and great-grandson, but she never saw him. So I'm thinking she would be so excited to see the picture, but she would be furious to learn about the scientific racism and how they came to be. So it was really a bag of, a mixed bag of emotions during that time. Why are you suing Harvard? I'm suing Harvard for many reasons, but first and foremost, I'm suing Harvard so that I can firstly ensure that the true history of who my enslaved ancestors are or were is told. I, I'm suing them because of their blatant disregard 
for my family's oral history, the legacy, the rich cultural legacy that Rinty left behind, and what I feel is an act of affrontery towards my family for their repeated comments referring to Rinty as invisible, for the public statements where they say that they know nothing about Rinty. And in my mind, when Harvard engages in that kind of public discord uh, or dialogue, it is an insult to my family. And for 11 years now, I have been trying to get them to come to the table, to look at my research, to confirm that I am Rinty's granddaughter and to tell Rinty's story and not the the ugly dark history of Lewis Agassiz and that scientific racism that they have for years told when they're telling the story of the daguerreotypes. Renty was an amazing person. Harvard knows the history of Renty, who he was, and not only who he was, but the uniqueness of the story. When you think about Renty being used as a symbol of ignorance or as a symbol of racial inferiority, and all the while, the same subject that was used in this, I call it a dark science, but the same subject was an educator. He was literate. He not only was literate, but he taught others to read and write. And so the irony of him being used as the symbol of ignorance when he was actually an educator, I think is an amazing story that deserves to be told. And to this day, Harvard has yet to embrace that, and they've never told that story. And so what I feel that Harvard has done for the last 10 years was engage in an act of cultural appropriation. They've decided that they want to tell their story of who Rinty is, irrespective of the true story. And they've decided that they are the keepers of the story, as opposed to the rich oral history and the legacy that was shared from generation to generation to where I sit today. And so, you know, I feel that they've appropriated his story, that they have appropriated the life of these enslaved people. And by denying them their history, they've denied them their dignity and self-respect. So... That in a nutshell is the reason why I brought the claim against Harvard. How did you first contact Harvard? My first email to Drew Faust, I want to read that to you because it was referenced in the complaint. Here it is. This was dated March 17, 2011. Dear President Faust, the purpose of this correspondence is to formally request your assistance in a matter that has by many been deemed historically significant. Approximately 37 years ago, a Harvard associate unearthed an amazing discovery found in the Peabody Museum were the piercing and poignant images of the evils of slavery. In 1850, Louis Agassiz commissioned the photographer J.T. Zealy to capture what he believed to be evidence of racial superiority. The slaves depicted in these daguerreotypes have touched the hearts and conscience of people worldwide. Amazingly, I have historical and U.S. census information confirming that two of these slaves are in fact my ancestors. I have shared this information with historians in many parts of the world, all whom have found my story remarkable. I have shared this information with scholars from both Yale and Princeton, and all of whom are astonished. On a number of occasions, 
I have reached out to Harvard's academia and found them to be unresponsive. I have called the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute of Afro-American Studies and have left messages and forwarded emails almost to the point of agnosium. I asked myself, why is Harvard the keeper of such historically significant information seemingly not interested in what has been described by the Connecticut Historical Society as a great American story? Earlier this week, I shared my plight with the Cambridge branch of the NAACP and was strongly encouraged to reach out to you. I reach out to you for two reasons. Firstly, I would like to learn more about the slave daguerreotypes and how they have or will be used. Secondly, I would like a formal review of my documentation to reaffirm that Rinty and Delia Taylor are indeed my ancestors. I anxiously await your response and would be willing to sit down with you and discuss this matter further. Did President Faust respond? Exactly 10 years ago today, I sent this. And basically, you know, I sum it up at the end. I'm asking for two things. Um, you know, firstly, a formal review of my documentation. And at this point, I knew in my heart that I was the granddaughter of Renty, but I was asking Harvard to look at this and confirm it for me. I got a response and I have a copy of that somewhere. Here it is. So she writes on April 1st, 2011, Dear Miss Lanier, thank you for writing and sharing your story with me. Subsequent to receiving your email, I was glad to learn that you have been in touch with Elisa Barbash and Pamela Giardi of the Peabody Museum, and that you have had an opportunity to view the daguerreotypes you mentioned in your email. I understand that the Peabody Museum is involved in an ongoing project regarding those daguerreotypes and that Ms. Barbash and Ms. Giardi have agreed to be in touch with you directly if they discover any new relevant information. I hope you will do the same. As a historian, I recognize the significance of this important study. And I very much appreciate your offer for assistance. Now, I didn't offer for assistance. I was asking them for assistance, but this is how they respond. And she said, with best wishes, and that's how she closes. So now, I didn't really feel at that point that it was adversarial. I was actually looking forward to hearing from them as to how they would be using the daguerreotypes and what they would be doing and the expectation that at this point they were saying that there are linear descendants of Renty and here's this amazing story. And so of course they never did that. I never heard anything from them until I reached out again. At the time, Tamara was also sharing her story with the Crimson, which ultimately decided not to publish the piece. I was talking with people from the Crimson and I was sharing the story about Renty and I was invited to come to Cambridge where I met with students who did like a video diary. We spent about a half a day there. Then there was a reporter, there were videographers and we had a great interview. And so I remember returning home and then ultimately hearing from a reporter with the Crimson and he put in writing to me, and I, I remember reading that, and just like all of the wind taken from my sails at that point, um, because I just 
got knocked down by Drew Faust's office, where I'm starting to say, okay, I see it now. You guys have not been honest about, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to keep you informed. And so he says to me, because of the concerns raised by the Peabody, we are not going to be able to run your story. You know, and he, he was very gracious. Thank you for taking the time to travel to Cambridge and to, to spend the entire day with us. And no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But because of these concerns raised by the Peabody, we can't run the story. And this was in an email and I started to reply, you know, what about the independence of the student-led newspaper? And what about, you know, your concerns as to why they're telling you not to run the story? That's the real story. But then I just replied, thank you, and I just kept it moving. The original Lanier v. Harvard court complaint reads that the Crimson approached Tamara in March 2016, hoping to do a story about the daguerreotypes and her connection with renting. The complaint alleges that the Crimson killed the story due to, quote, concerns the Peabody Museum has raised, and instead ran an op-ed by then-President Faust acknowledging Harvard's complicity in slavery. So, Tamara, now that the case has been recently dismissed, what's next? Would it be enough for Harvard to apologize or to recognize that you are Renty's descendant? Way too little too late. You know, Harvard has shown me that I can't trust them. They have shown me that so many times. And it's interesting because when we get to the point where we're talking about the lawsuit, I think that I had an opportunity to explain that when I first reached out to Harvard, I didn't feel like that was an adversarial communication. And they, they, you know, the response from Drew Faust at that time was amicable in that, you know, we will keep informed. And, you know, the, the, the Peabody does plan to have other events using the daguerreotypes, and we will keep you apprised of that. And if they had just lived up to their promises, uh, you know, we would not be here. But Harvard has shown its hand. They have shown me that they can't be trusted, that they don't negotiate in good faith, that they are not honest. And, you know, it's funny because when you think of the school shield with the Veritas about truth, and, you know, and so it's almost hypocritical for Harvard to celebrate that, that concept of truth when they have been dishonest for so many years. And so, you know, this case will expose that because I have, I have the ability to prove everything that I've said. Tamara plans to appeal the Middlesex judge's decision. The Peabody Museum has had its fair share of controversy. Earlier this year, University President Larry Bacow announced possible remains of enslaved people were found in the Peabody's archives. He sent an apology to Harvard affiliates as a response. At the end of the letter, Bacow wrote of the museum's compliance with the Native American Graves Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, which requires federal agencies or institutions that receive federal funds to identify Native American cultural items and repatriate them to their rightful tribe. Days after Bacow's apology citing NAGPRA, Shannon O. Lachlan with the Association on American Indian Affairs sent a letter to President Bacow expressing their disappointment with the Peabody Museum's compliance with NAGPRA. While the Peabody Museum said they are in full compliance with the act, the Association on American Indians Affairs says they can do more. 
We are joined by four representatives from the association. Shannon O'Loughlin, Colleen Medicine, Sonia Atalai, and Shannon Martin. I want to tell you what we went through to get to the letter. So the association has been uh, researching and analyzing the data that is public about institutions that have not been complying with NAGPRA. And how we've been looking and, and starting that research is based on their current reported number of ancestors that institutions have in their collection. And so we've been looking at that public information that's available through the National NAGPRA program, which is under the Department of Interior. They have databases available online for anyone to look at. And Harvard is about number four as being one of the worst or the most numerous ancestors in their collections. So that means they have not repatriated or they still have a large collection um, that they haven't dealt with yet. What we found when we looked at Harvard just on the numbers is that most of their ancestors are all in the culturally unidentifiable category. And at the same time, those ancestors, almost 97% of those ancestors all have geographic information connected to the ancestor, which means that tribal consultation and repatriation should be happening with these ancestors because there is information that, that connects them to tribes. So that was just on some of the factual information we were looking at. But the years of practice that I've been engaging in and that Sonia, Shannon, and Colleen have been working on, we have gathered a lot of collective stories about how Harvard has treated Native American tribes in their repatriation requests. The Association on American Indian Affairs gets calls and has been working with tribes, even to today, about their problems with Harvard. And so in, in the midst of all of this, President Bacow issues an apology about the Black enslaved persons whose remains they have in their collections and at the end of this apology was a mention of their work with tribes and the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And that was it for us. We said, we've had it. In a letter addressed to the AAIA, director of the Peabody Museum, Jane Pickering, wrote that, quote, These human remains in the Peabody demonstrate how the museum's historic collecting practices ignored the wishes and values of families and communities, particularly people considered to be outside Western traditions. Institutions such as Harvard University benefit from colonial and imperial policies, including those central to the history of scientific racism. Facing our history is essential to the museum's ethical stewardship of the collections and its care. This work includes a concrete commitment to the return of individuals to fulfill the ethical and moral imperative of NAGPRA. As we are sure you would agree, treating all ancestors with care and dignity means they need to be treated as individuals, which is complex and takes time, respect, and sensitivity. What's the process of identifying and repatriating cultural items? The process outlined in the regulations is, is pretty simple. So based on the geography, and tribal consultation, a museum makes a determination 
of affiliation and then proceeds with repatriation. That's the very bare simplified version of the process. Instead, what they have done is they have taken the geographic information. They may have done some type of consultation meeting, maybe with some tribes, we don't know. But instead of doing that proper consultation to begin with, they put their ancestors and their funerary belongings on the culturally unidentifiable inventory list. That means they're not affiliated. We don't know what to do with these ancestors. And the only process available for these ancestors to go back in the ground is through a more complex, difficult process that puts the burden on tribal nations to prove various forms of evidence to either get those ancestors put back on the culturally affiliated list or to go through the disposition process, which requires tribes to seek a disposition from the Department of Interior. So they have to have that federal approval for the disposition to happen. And in that process, the institution does not have to give back the funerary objects. So what we saw is that Harvard is an institution that would not even uh, work with tribes to culturally affiliate the ancestors, even though tribes provided a plethora of information. But they wanted to keep the ancestors on that culturally unidentifiable list so that they didn't have to give back the funerary objects. And that's exactly what they've done. So that was one of the big uh, points of contention we have. In her letter, Pickering wrote, quote, let us state our unequivocal position. We intend that the Native American individuals in the Peabody Museum will be transferred through repatriation or disposition. The museum has no interest in subverting or delaying NAGPRA's implementation. Our museum is not the proper place for these remains, and we are committed to their return. Well, this is Shannon Martin, speaking from experience in working through the NACPA process with the Harvard University Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology in 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016. It felt like the paternalistic patting on the head for us, as, and I felt that personally. Uh, because of the experience that we were subjected to in our consultation with the Peabody Museum, it was an experience that um, was disheartening. It was depleted our spirits. Harvard was working with us under the letter of the law. And in doing so, they refused to return our ancestors' associated funerary objects, their funerary belongings. So for 98 individuals who were lovingly and spiritually interred into the earth with beautiful ceremonies at the time, their loved ones giving them those items that meant something to them during their lifetime. Harvard decided, you know, they didn't have, they were going to follow the letter of the law and retain all of those 98 individuals' funerary belongings that were buried with them. We spent hours pleading with the curator, with the collection management team, and at that time with the director of the Peabody Museum to ethically and morally uh, release these items back when the ancestors were transferred. They decided to retain them. 
you know, for us is, is an egregious assault on their basic human dignity. Uh, so that was our experience that one, we had to find the funding to begin the consultation and to carry through the consultation. Two, we had to endure these meetings where divisive tactics were employed upon us, where the NAGPRA team at the Harvard Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology would place doubt on their side and they would throw around statements like, well, our legal team reviewed the NAGPRA law and they've reviewed these ancestors and their geographical location and there could be a tribe. Say, what if there's a tribe in two years that becomes federally recognized and they wanted to make claim on these ancestors? So, you know, we really shouldn't give them to you uh, as a collective of Michigan tribes because there may be a tribe in Oklahoma that was removed from the Michigan territory and they become a federally recognized tribe in two or three years. So, how, so they would place this a shadow of doubt and divisiveness on us. But we we had to clear and sweep that away as as tribes and as experts in NAGPRA law and practitioners of, of NAGPRA in our own right. But it's those types of tactics that many of these bad player institutions and universities like to throw upon us during consultation on tribal people. And sometimes they'll create intertribal conflict when there is none, but they'll create it so that they can continue in their retentive ways to, to keep our ancestors. So th that's our experience um, and my personal experience with the Tribe Alliance working with the Peabody, which it should be, you know, the law is easy. And I like to always quote, you know, my sister Shannon Keller Lachlan on this. She said, always says the law is easy. It's humans that are complex. In her letter, Pickering wrote, quote, as you are aware, cultural affiliation must be established using multiple types of evidence. Kinship, biological, archaeological, anthropological, linguistic, folklore, oral tradition, historical, or expert opinion. These lines of evidence, not geography alone, are critical to affiliation. When consulting on unidentified human remains, institutions are required to reach out to all tribes who may have a relationship with these individuals which may supersede present-day geography. Shannon O'Loughlin, however, says that Harvard's requirements are more stringent than they should be. There's really two ways to do NAGPRA. We have to remind sometimes our resistant partners who are uh, in institution positions that NAGPRA was a law that was developed for the benefit of tribal nations. Article 12 of the act says specifically that the act was developed out of the government to government relationship between federal agencies and tribes and for no other reason or purpose. So it wasn't meant for scientific research. It wasn't meant to benefit museums. It was to repair the wrong, the historic wrong that had occurred when the United States set forward law and policy that was working to commit genocide and assimilate tribal nations, outlawing their religions and cultural practices and allowing individuals and institutions to take their belongings and to unearth their ancestors and burial objects from the ground to put behind glass or to do scientific experiment on. 
this law was meant as a human rights law to move repatriation forward. And the regulations and process written is to achieve that purpose. So there are two ways to do NAGPRA. One is with the intent to repatriate. And when you read the law as Congress intended, which was to repatriate, then the process allows you to do so. But if you read the law to try to figure out cultural affiliation, like how Harvard moves its repatriation process forward, looking at it more as a scientific research project or a what if, what if, what if, what if, instead of with the intent to repatriate, then you're like Harvard and you have 7,000 dead Indians in your basement that you refuse to do proper tribal consultation on and, and to repatriate. So those are the two kinds. Either you intend to repatriate or you intend not to repatriate and instead spend all your time on the question of cultural affiliation and does it really exist or not. I'd just follow up on what Shannon and Shannon have said. This is Sonia. Just to say in terms of thinking of what Congress intended, you know, we know that Congress did not intend for this law to put the burden of proof on Native people. Congress didn't intend to put all these burdens that, that you're hearing about on Native people. That was not the intention of the law. And in fact, if we look at also the intention of the law in terms of the data that's required for affiliation, right? We, geographic information is enough. It is enough. The law doesn't say, yes, there are certain forms of data that the law allows, folklore, geographical, oral tradition, archaeological, biological, right? The law spells that out. The law does not require you to have all of those forms of evidence. Geographic information is enough. And while what's become complicated is that museums, such as Harvard, put themselves in the place of being the arbiter of determining if tribes have produced enough data, enough information, right? They put themselves in this position of saying, you must gather all these forms of data and prove it to us, rather than saying, here are the lines of evidence. What do we have that's currently available? That's what the, that's the standard in the law. The law doesn't say it's not, a, and this is what we see, this excuse of, well, we, we need more data, we need more evidence. We have to go out and somehow get all these lines of evidence. The law does not require that. The law says that what you have based on the available evidence. So the, the kind of framework that you need all this data and you spend then, it, it becomes this technique to delay and a way to just get around the law. I, I agree. NAGPRA is simple. We know that 30% of museums have been able to get it right. And these aren't just small museums with small collections, large, large museums, large institutions. 30% of them have been able to figure this out and get it right. Shannon O'Loughlin said the association received a response to its letter, both from Pickering and President Bagow. Among other things, Pickering announced a change to its policy regarding associated funerary objects. The letter read that the Peabody would be returning those objects and apologized for prior refusals to repatriate and the harm they had caused. In an interview with the Harvard Gazette, Phil Deloria, the chair of the NACPRA committee at Harvard, expanded on the letter and said the museum worked on about 50 repatriation cases per year. 
The association initially received an email response from President Bacow that basically said a letter from uh, Jane Pickering, the director. The museum uh, would be forthcoming and about a week or so later. We did receive a letter. It was signed by Jane Pickering and Phil Deloria. Phil Deloria is the chair of the NAGPRA committee that kind of oversees the process from Harvard. Um, and just to let you know that that committee is all internal. There's no one from the outside except staff and, and faculty from the university. So it's very insular. So we received that response. And it basically went through all the, the contentions that we had. Again, not understanding that their ability to follow the law uh, didn't start in the right place. Again, they're stuck in the fact that tribes have to produce all of this evidence to prove affiliation. And that's not what should be happening. The burden is still on Harvard to make a determination on affiliation based on what's already in evidence, the geography and tribal consultation. There's no additional research that needs to be done. Tribes do not have to put in some kind of formal research project showing that they have affiliation. It's based simply on geography and the tribal consultation. They make note of a change in percentage. So we let them know that they were only 18%. Uh, they had only repatriated 18% of their collections. They corrected us and said, well, it's actually 33%. And the reason why the numbers are different is because we didn't take into consideration a joint repatriation that Harvard Peabody did with the Peabody Andover Museum. And the reason why we didn't include those numbers is because that repatriation was not a willing repatriation from Harvard Peabody. Andover was the lead in that repatriation. So um, we didn't see it as a Harvard Peabody repatriation. It was an Andover and we credit them for making that repatriation occur. So that's why we didn't include those numbers in our data. Um, we were happy to see that they have revisited whether or not they were going to be returning funerary belongings in the disposition process and that they were gonna go back and return those that they hadn't returned in the past. I will tell you that um, we're grateful that they've made that decision but I, I want to be clear about one thing. They don't have the right to keep those. What the law has provided is that they may return. The law uses the word may. So when the decision was initially made, they could have. The law didn't support them keeping or not keeping. It was all under their control. So when the letter and other responses that we see um, in public con commentary by, by Phil Deloria talks about that they, they should have been acting in the spirit of the law instead of the law. No, the law allows them to make a decision to return those. And it was there when they initially made the decision. So what they've done now is they've caused a great harm that is going to be difficult to repair. So now the tribe will hopefully have these associated funerary belongings. It's not clear though how 
Harvard is going to move that forward because in, in that Gazette article, Phil Deloria says that they will open up consultation again. And to me, that means that they're starting over again to determine how to return these instead of just repatriating them to the tribes that received the ancestors in the first place. It concerns me the language that he's using as a lawyer and very smart person when he says he's going to reopen consultation about those associated funerary objects. So we're glad, but to us, everything is still in the abstract. They haven't proven that they are going to change the way they do business. So nothing in the letter showed us that they were going to change the way they do business. In fact, the issues we presented that they acted on, we gave them five things we'd like to see them happen. They haven't done any of those five. They haven't responded in the way we had hoped with any of those five. Yeah, and if I could follow up, this is Colleen. I wanted to talk about the response that Harvard intends to now return funerary belongings that were not returned previously in repatriations under disposition 10.11. I found it really um, disappointing that Harvard didn't address the harm that that created in our communities. And I, and I think that an apology to each of those communities and to their elders and to the people who do this work, that was so incredibly disappointing not to see that because our, like, I know for a fact, um, and Shannon mentioned the repatriation to um, the Michigan tribes in, um, in which 98 ancestors were returned. The number of funerary belongings that were kept hostage at Harvard was 422. I mean, 422 funerary objects that they withheld from those ancestors. And it's, I get emotional when I talk about it because we as tribal reps sometimes have a hard time even looking at those objects, even, even having to work with them because we know that they're not for us. They were intended to be for our ancestors and for them to keep those hostage. It is so detrimental to our communities and to our elders and to our ancestors and our relatives. And then to not even really like issue uh, an apology to those tribes. And to say that they would reopen consultation when it's simple under the law, they could just repatriate them back to those tribes. It was hurtful. And, and I think that they hadn't really addressed the harm that was done by withholding those objects. And I also just wanted to say that I think a moratorium would have been very easily done. It could have been done very quickly and swiftly and could have been issued already in the time that they've had to create their response back to the association. And so I find that very disappointing that a moratorium on research wasn't done. And I, I can't think of another reason why unless ongoing research is happening. In her letter, Pickering wrote, quote, We do not allow destructive research on culturally affiliated human remains or items without permission from the tribe. So Shannon O'Loughlin, can you tell me what does it mean for you when an institution does decide to conduct research on cultural items and ancestral remains? So can we use your grandma? To me, it goes directly like, is it okay if I dig up your, and that's a really harsh way, and I hate to take that position, but I think in order to connect with the emotion of it, that's always where I go to. If it's okay for me, if you're not donating your body, if you're not donating your ancestors' bodies to museums and academia to do research on, what makes it okay to do that to ours? 
Colleen chimes in. Yeah, and if I could add to that, I think if you think about it this way, those ancestors and those funerary belongings were lovingly placed into the earth at one, one point, given their, their last rites and done so in such a wonderful and good kind way. And then all of a sudden, those things, that journey is kind of taken from them, that those last rites taken from them when they're ripped from the ground and then they're shoved into, you know, sometimes pencil boxes and placed into these really awful conditions and then undergo you know, destructive research, they're basically undergoing every indignity and atrocity that you can think of. And so how do I feel about that? Well, I'm just calling it as I see it. It's, it's an indignity and it's an atrocity and it keeps going, keeps happening to our people and their objects at Harvard. A university spokesperson declined to comment on the record for this episode. This series is hosted by Raquel Cornell Uribe and 6U. It's produced by Lara Dada with music by Dash Chin and art by Madison Shirazi. Thank you to Tamara Lanier, Shannon O'Loughlin, Colleen Medicine, Sonia Atalai, and Shannon Martin for joining us. <laughs>